0: European Hearts Journal issue as a Glance, Volume 38, Issue 16, Focus Issue on Valvular Heart Disease, by Editor-in-Chief Professor Thomas Lucia. Valvular Heart Disease – New Risk Factors and New Challenges In less than two decades, valvular heart disease has seen a true revival in cardiovascular medicine since the first percutaneous replacement of a pulmonary valve By Philippe Bonhoeffer in the year 2000, and the first catheter based implantation of an aortic bioprosthesis by Hélène Cribier in 2002. This enormous progress in the percutaneous treatment of valvular heart disease has stimulated research into the causes and mechanisms of these disorders. In the first article of this focus issue, Eileen Gentleman and colleagues from King's College London in the UK discuss. Aortic valve calcification, a bone of contention, a major mechanism of degenerative aortic stenosis which affects as many as 26% of individuals over the age of 65 even before valve disease occurs. Until recently, calcification was believed to be a passive process associated with ageing. However, the identification of osteogenic morphogens in calcific lesions in the 1990s caused a paradigm shift. Since then, calcification has been linked to bone formation. Whilst calcific lesions share similarities with bone, modern techniques have shown that in most cases their compositions vary tremendously and ubiquitous features of calcific lesions are absent in bone. Nevertheless, understanding of the process of normal bone formation provides important insights into potential mechanisms through which pathological minerals form in other organs. To open doors for future measures to prevent the formation of aortic stenosis, further research into the initiation and progression of calcification, rather than seeking to reverse it, appear most promising. A future focus on interdisciplinary efforts that complement current biological approaches may allow us to better understand and perhaps eventually prevent calcific disease. Calcified aortic stenosis and mitral annular calcification have certain similar etiology and pathophysiological mechanisms. Mitral annular calcification is frequently encountered in pre-procedural CT imaging of patients undergoing transcatheter aortic valve replacement, but its prognostic implications for these patients have not been thoroughly investigated. In a clinical research article entitled Concomitant Mitral Annular Calcification and Severe Aortic Stenosis Prevalence, Characteristics and Outcome Following Transcatheter Aortic Valve Replacement, Raj Makar and colleagues from the Cedars-Sinai Heart Institute in Los Angeles, California, USA sought to evaluate the prevalence of mitral annular calcification among patients with severe aortic stenosis and to assess the clinical implications of mitral annular calcification on these patients during and following transcatheter aortic valve replacement. Consecutive patients that underwent transcatheter aortic valve replacement were compared according to the presence of mitral annular calcifications and their severity in pre-transcatheter aortic valve replacement CT scans. From the entire cohort of 761 patients, 49% had mitral annular calcification and 51% did not. Mild mitral annular calcification was present in 30%, moderate mitral annular calcification in 10%, and severe mitral annular calcification in another 10%. 30-day mortality and major complications were similar in those with and without mitral annular calcification. In a multivariable survival analysis, severe mitral annular calcification was an independent predictor of overall mortality following transcatheter aortic valve replacement. Severe mitral annular calcification was also found to be an independent strong predictor of new permanent pacemaker implantation after transcatheter aortic valve replacement with an odds ratio of 2.8. The authors conclude that half of the patients with severe aortic stenosis evaluated for transcatheter aortic valve replacement have mitral annular calcification. Severe mitral annular calcification is associated with increased all-cause and cardiovascular mortality and with conduction abnormalities following transcatheter aortic valve replacement and should be included in future risk stratification models for transcatheter aortic valve replacement. These relevant observations are further discussed in an editorial by Lars Sondergaard from the Rijkshospitalet in Copenhagen, Denmark. Today's catheter-based treatment of cardiac valves would not have been possible without Andreas Grunzig's seminal first balloon angioplasty and the later development of implantable metallic scaffolds, so-called coronary stents. Ulrich Sigwart and colleagues from the Université de Genève in Switzerland report in a special article Living History of Medicine Vascular Scaffolding – From Dream to Reality – his own seminal first implantation of a coronary stent. He reminds us that following the first balloon angioplasty in 1977, its deficiencies, in particular abrupt coronary closure requiring emergency bypass surgery in 1 in 20 attempts and recurrent angina due to restenosis in one of three cases, soon became apparent. The attempts to eliminate the element of chance from this otherwise highly attractive technique resulted in the concept of intravascular scaffolding. Following the inception of self-expanding mesh stents made from stainless steel and extensive bench testing and animal experiments, the first clinical data were obtained in Switzerland in 1986 with promising, albeit not undisputed, results. Technical improvements, including potent platelet inhibitors, have made the technique a cornerstone of catheter treatment of vascular disease. Ulrich Sigwart gives a personal account of the sometimes difficult beginnings of coronary and non-coronary stenting with a high incidence of stent thrombosis, a problem that today has become a rare event, and other issues at the University of Lausanne in Switzerland in the
1: pioneering 1980s.
0: Today, percutaneous coronary intervention is the treatment of choice in most patients with stable and in those with acute coronary artery disease. Today, percutaneous valve implantation, although already matured compared to the early days, faces unforeseen problems. The presence of hypoattenuated leaflet thickening and or reduced leaflet motion on multi-detector row-computed tomography has been proposed as a possible marker for early transcatheter aortic valve thrombosis. However, its association with abnormal valve hemodynamics on echocardiography, another potential marker of thrombosis, and clinical outcomes, such as stroke, remains unclear. In their clinical research article entitled, Transcatheter aortic valve thrombosis, the relation between hypoattenuated leaflet thickening abnormal valve hemodynamics and stroke, Jeroen J. Bax and colleagues from the Leiden University Medical Center in the Netherlands evaluated the prevalence of hypoattenuated leaflet thickening on multi-detector row computed tomography and abnormal valve hemodynamics on echocardiography. In addition, the occurrence of ischemic stroke and or transient ischemic attack in 434 patients who underwent transcatheter aortic valve replacement. Transcatheter valve hemodynamics were assessed on echocardiography at discharge six months and thereafter yearly up to three years. The presence of hypoattenuated leaflet thickening and or reduced leaflet motion was assessed on multi-detector row-computed tomography 35 days after transcatheter aortic valve replacement in 128 of these 434 patients possible transcatheter aortic valve replacement valve thrombosis was defined by mean transvalvular gradient greater or equal to 20 mm of mercury and aortic valve area less than or equal to 1.1 cm2 on echocardiography or by the presence of hypoattenuated leaflet thickening or reduced leaflet motion on multidetector row computed tomography The occurrence of ischemic stroke slash transient ischemic attack at follow-up was recorded. The authors found that hypoattenuated leaflet thickening and or reduced leaflet motion was present in 12.5% of patients undergoing multi-detector row-computed tomography and was associated with a slightly higher mean transvalvular gradient of 12mm of mercury as compared to those who did not develop this in which the gradient averaged 9 millimeters of mercury. Also, hypoattenuated leaflet thickening was associated with a smaller aortic valve area of 1.5 cm2 compared to controls with 1.8 cm2. Notably, only one patient with hypoattenuated leaflet thickening on multi-detector row computed tomography revealed abnormal valve hemodynamics on echocardiography. At three-year follow-up, abnormal valve hemodynamics on echocardiography were observed in 3% of patients. Importantly, hypoattenuated leaflet thickening on multi-detector row computed tomography and abnormal valve hemodynamics on echocardiography were not associated with increased risk of ischemic stroke or transient ischemic attack. Bax and colleagues conclude that on multi-detector row-computed tomography, one in seven patients showed hypoattenuated leaflet thickening or reduced leaflet motion, whereas only one of the overall patients developed abnormal valve hemodynamics. Neither hypoattenuated leaflet thickening nor increased transvalvular gradient were associated with stroke or transient ischemic attack. These clinically important findings are further discussed in an editorial authored by Franz-Josef Neumann from the Universitätsherzzentrum Freiburg
1: in Bad Kreuzingen, Germany.
0: According to current guidelines, patients with an aortic valve area of less than 1 cm2 and symptoms such as dyspnea or angina or exercise-induced syncope are considered for valve replacement. In contrast, the management of asymptomatic patients with aortic stenosis remains controversial. Symptoms provoked on exercise testing is a class 1 indication for aortic valve replacement but has low specificity. Myocardial perfusion reserve, as assessed by Magnetic Resonance Imaging, or MRI, is an independent predictor of exercise capacity in patients with severe aortic stenosis and inversely related to symptomatic class. In another research manuscript entitled Comparison of Exercise Testing and CMR Measured Myocardial Perfusion Reserve for Predicting Outcome in Asymptomatic Aortic Stenosis, the Prognostic Importance of Microvascular Dysfunction in Aortic Stenosis, Primid-AS, Study, Jerry P. McCann and colleagues from the University of Leicester and NIHR Cardiovascular Biomedical Research Unit in the UK Assess the prognostic value of myocardial perfusion reserve and exercise testing in asymptomatic patients with moderate to severe aortic stenosis and an aortic valve area index of 0.6 cm2 per m2. 174 patients underwent adenosine stress MRI, symptom-limited exercise testing, and echocardiography, and were followed up for up to 30 months. The primary outcome was a composite of typical aortic stenosis symptoms necessitating referral for aortic valve replacement, cardiovascular death, and major adverse cardiovascular events. Over a follow-up of one year, a primary outcome occurred in 27% of the patients. Myocardial perfusion reserve in those with and without a primary outcome was 2.1 and 2.3 respectively, while the incidence of a symptom-limited exercise testing was 46% and 27% respectively. Myocardial perfusion reserve showed moderate association with outcome, as did exercise testing. The authors conclude that myocardial perfusion reserve was associated with symptom onset in initially asymptomatic patients with aortic stenosis, but with moderate accuracy and was not superior to symptom-limited exercise testing. These findings that may be relevant for the management of such patients are commented on by Patrizio Lancelotti from the University Hospital of Liège in Belgium. Besides valvular heart disease, patients with congenital heart disease require special attention. Francisco Fernández Aviez and colleagues from the Hospital Universitario Virgen Macarena in Seville, Spain, addressed this issue in their paper Risk Factors for Excess Mortality in Adults with Congenital Heart Disease. They conducted a survival analysis on 3,311 adults with congenital heart disease over a follow-up of 37,608 person-years. Overall, 10% of the patients died, with an annual death rate of 0.89%. Median age at death was 75 years. Thus, survival was reduced compared with the general population, whatever their level of complexity, repair status, or underlying congenital heart disease. Independent risk factors for excess mortality were cyanosis, univentricular physiology, genetic disorders, ventricular dysfunction, residual hemodynamic lesions, and acquired late complications. Of note, median age at death was 56 years for the 996 patients with at least one risk factor. In contrast, median age at death of 84 years in the 2,315 patients with no risk factors. Thus, clinical parameters such as anatomical features, hemodynamic sequelae, or acquired complications were independent predictors of excess mortality in adults with congenital heart disease. Survival of individuals with no risk factors did not differ from the reference population. The manuscript is accompanied by an editorial by Werner Butz from the University Hospital Gasthuisberg
1: in Leuven, Belgium.
0: This issue concludes with an analysis of cardiovascular research the growing burden of cardiovascular disease also requires an appropriate growth in research and innovation. In a special article entitled Mapping Cross-Border Collaboration and Communication in Cardiovascular Research from 1992-2012, to Karin R. Sipido and colleagues from the University of Leuven in Belgium examined worldwide participation and citation impact across the cardiovascular research landscape, from 1992 to 2012. The authors investigated cross-fertilization between countries and examined whether cross-border collaboration affects impact. The publication output in cardiovascular research has grown steadily from 1992 to 2012 with increased participation worldwide. China has the highest growth as relative share. The USA share initially predominated yet reduced steadily. Over time, the EU27 supranational region increased its participation above the USA, though on average it has not had greater citation impact than the USA. However, several European countries, as well as Australia and Canada, have improved their absolute and relative citation impact above that of the USA. Europe is a hub of cross-fertilisation, with strengthening collaborations and strong citation links The UK, Germany and France remain central in this network. The USA has the highest number of strong citation links with other countries. All countries, but especially smaller, highly collaborative countries, have higher citation impact for their internationally collaborative research when compared to their domestic publications. Cepedo and colleagues conclude that participation in cardiovascular research is growing but growth and impact show wide variability between countries. Cross-border collaboration is increasing within the EU and is associated with greater citation impact. The editors hope that this issue of the European Hearts Journal will
1: find the interest of its readers.